You're listening to A Study by Philip Ballasha. If you'd like to read along, you can find a link in the description of, of this video that'll take you to the blog where I upload my stories. Frank Holmes liked to say that childhood was the father of the man. One, because people would think they'd misheard him and give him reason to repeat himself, which he did with a self-satisfied graciousness. Two, because it allowed him to talk about his childhood and so explain what he meant. As a boy, he took to reading his father's set of classics, as well as his encyclopedias and dictionaries. His family wasn't quite poor, but they had to be careful and make things last. His father's library held only the cheapest hardbacks he could find first or second hand. His father had bought them some time before Frank's birth as a way to fill bookshelves. When Frank was born, his attitude changed. As soon as his son was old enough to understand them, and yet still young enough for bedtime stories, he went over the more cheerful Edgar Allan Poe and the easier Dickens with him. The books were meant for mature readers. Their pages had words and nothing else. His father made illustrations of major characters on printer paper. These he slipped into protective plastic and put into a binder so that they would age as gracefully as the books themselves. Whenever a story introduced someone new or returned to a character after an intermission, his father would flip to their portrait. For Frank, they were more than entertainment. They found their way into his thoughts and dreams. They were how he saw those he read about, why he knew the exact angle of Fagin's nose, or in just what way Poe's mummy was wrapped, and how thin Oliver looked as he asked for more gruel, though Dickens and Poe never told these secrets to anyone. They were what came to his mind when he thought of thieves and mummies and poor hungry boys. With a few lines, his father drew a character. Dickens did the same. Both added more detail than you could take in at a glance. His father between his outlines, Dickens between his book covers. Frankert understood this before he could put it into words. They tended to read long novels with small casts when he could get Frank to agree to it. That way, he wouldn't take on too much work as he did when drawing characters for a story that was over before Frank had begun to yawn in spite of himself. He was a good artist, though he had neither training nor interest in it, which was why he treated his talent as incidental. These readings gave Frank a child's understanding of works that were, at that time, beyond him. This put him far above most of his classmates. When he read encyclopedias, what he got from them were loose facts not structured in a narrative or an argument. Dictionaries gave him example sentences, which he read as if they were the slivers of a story, as well as the meanings of words that would offend or confuse if he repeated them, which he never did. Occasionally, he learned a word and felt rewarded when he read them, then read it elsewhere, like during his father's readings. Although his hobbies had nothing to do with their finances, Frank felt reading was his way of contributing, or rather, of sacrificing. If they'd had the money for more, however, he wouldn't have spent it on himself. He didn't want for anything but security, something he first realized his family lacked when he overheard his parents discuss it. His father had asked what would become of Frank, who began listening closely only when he heard his name at the very end of that sentence. He strained to hear them through his bedroom walls, and then learned how dire this situation was. They weren't in danger of losing their house or car. They had savings, 
but not enough to do away with worry altogether. He lay in bed that night and thought what he could do to help. He expected it of himself, though his parents didn't. As an adult, he could see how his circumstances had made him miserly, or as he put it, defending himself for an accusation few had the guts to make to his face, practical. He darned his socks, a practice so outmoded that even the word that describes it isn't well known. He treated the suits he wore to funerals like any other, meaning that he might seem to be mourning when he wasn't. Others explained this to him. He agreed it was so, and left it at that. He didn't intend to go against any customs. In fact, he was in that regard conservative, though not from any deeply held belief. He just didn't see why a good suit should be worn so rarely, or why he shouldn't, with a little effort, a needle and some thread, save money on clothes. Frank pointed out his sewing machine in the corner of his living room when new guests came around. He knew it was unusual and believed it deserved explanation. Jack Davis was one such guest. He mistook it first as a sculpture, then as a sewing machine that Frank had inherited, rather than one he bought himself. You must think I'm stupid. That's my fault, Jack said. I know what a sewing machine is. Of course, I never would have thought people besides tailors still used them. No, I don't. No, most people don't, but I do, Frank said, in the manner of establishing the facts of a situation. He told Jack what I've told you about his childhood, and then he said his favorite phrase. Jack understood. Childhood, like dreams and memories, is often the stuff of aimless conversations, something Frank and his friends like to indulge in. Jack, a name his parents chose as a lopsided compromise between French and English, talked about being raised in, in Quebec and what being French-Canadian meant to him and to the world at large in an almost accentless English, although he admitted the world at large didn't seem to care very much. But I do, Frank said. Jack smiled and continued. You could take the historical view and recount how French Canada came to be. You could work for the particular, the individual, to the general, the region. He did both and took Frank along as they went through discussions which Jack was well prepared to have. All this and more would be in the books he was working on. When he was finished, that is. Jack wasn't one for novel writing. He had decided essays were easiest. His material was what he observed as someone who had family in Quebec and friends in Toronto. He'd lost touch with his Quebec friends when he moved to Toronto at 13, an age at which he disliked being called either a boy or a young man. That was when Jack felt the split had occurred, a confession for which Jack, uh, Frank thanked him by listening as he explained his intentions for his book. Frank saw himself quite differently. His life was continuous. From child to man, he had always felt himself to be the same person, although his mind had changed. Some would say for the better, some would beg to differ, and they'd get that right too, he said. Frank's circle was intellectual, in the sense that they tried to understand the world, but had no plans to change it as long as people left them to their studies. As Frank said one afternoon to the dismay and eventual agreement of the others in the room, as they realized how right he was. The only freedom they really asked for was the easiest to guarantee, the right to conversations that amounted to nothing and to express ideas that would outlive them solely because they weren't original. 
their talks usually began with one of them picking up a book and throwing off a quote with a sweep of their free arm. Last week, they attempted Norman Mailer in Frank's living room, which doubled as a study. The furniture was brown leather sofas and chairs, wooden bookshelves, a desk, and drawers. This brown was interrupted by two houseplants, his white carpets, and the weak sun that curled up on them. Frank announced unto the room and all those gathered there what Mailer said about Marilyn Monroe. She slipped away from us. She had been slipping away from us for years. Now it is easy to say that her actions became more vague every year. I thought... He interrupted himself to point out that it was Mailer who said this. I thought she was bad in the misfits. She was finally too vague, and when emotion showed, it was unattractive and small. But she was gone from us a long time ago. He stood with the book spread across his arm, his hand holding the top, awaiting an answer. Jack had just come back from Christmas in Quebec. Later, when their discussion turned away from books entirely, Frank would ask him how his Christmas was. He'd say, Ah, you were in Quebec, I remember, though he knew it all along, and then lead into the question he had planned. Are there any traditions in Quebec for that time of year? There are, but my family's too close to the city to keep them alive, Jack would respond. His Anglo-Canadian mother had won more than just the right to name him. He could speak Quebecois uh, French, but that was practically all he knew of the culture, far less than he liked to imply. As lazy as Jack was about writing his book, he'd slowly come to understand how little he had to say about his chosen subject. Had he worked harder, he would have realized this sooner. If he had ever been torn between two cultures, his mother had had by far the stronger pull. His family celebrated Christmas on the 25th and never went to midnight mass. The distinction between his parents' Christmas traditions lay in what they ate. Here, his mother had deferred to her husband. Jack would sum it up as pork pie, pig leg, and turkey. Having explained that, he would then try to remember the name of the butcher his father had gotten his meat from. He'd recall how the blood soaked through the white paper tied with a string, but not the man himself. All of that was still hours away. Jack was tired and hadn't paid attention to what Frank said or to what, Miller, to what Mailer said. He asked what it meant to be vague. Before he did that, however, he took a cigarette out of his pack, lit it, and opened the window for Frank's sake. Then he laid back down across the sofa and shook his cigarette over the ashtray Frank had put, at, put on the living room table in the meanwhile. Frank didn't quite know how to answer, and instead gave a perfect demonstration. I suppose he means she didn't do a very good job of acting, didn't properly define her character. All right, Jack said. I don't know her very well. She was, I mean, you've seen her, but my bad, Frank said. He held up his hands to admit fault. He gave it another try with Mailer on Hemingway and how he used the press but Jack declined that too. Am I supposed to throw, throw quotes at you until you find one you like? Frank asked. He knew the answer. Here's something you'll know what to do with. He cleared his throat unnecessarily. You never really know a woman until you meet her in court. Jack didn't care for this either, but made an attempt to say more than last time. 
than for all my adventures. I guess he just had more experience. No, I don't think that's true. I've known plenty of women, and I've never had to divorce them. He drew up a list as proof, and asked Frank if he could remember them all. Frank nodded. Even her? Jack asked in mock surprise. Frank nodded again. Well, if he only paid attention when they were splitting up, that's his fault. Jack said. They continued to talk, partly about Mailer and women, but mostly about Jack and women. When they ran out of interest in his essays, they moved on to gossip. Who Mailer had slept with, stabbed, and criticized. His wife got all three. Others had more luck. Jack had more respect for the women he knew, even after leaving them. After Jack left, Frank emptied the ashtray and washed it out until it gleamed again. He left it to dry on his kitchen counter. Occasionally, they held speeches in the park, amassing a little following more for how well they spoke than for what they said, which was never political nor really relevant to their listeners' lives, except maybe to their hobbies and interests. The FBI had a file on Frank and the rest, as it did on everybody, that dismissed them as harmless. Had they known about it, they would have agreed without hesitation, partly because it was true. Their habits, Frank's practicality, Jack's smoking, and pretensions of writing, were just as unconcerning. They went to the park when they had something to say, and so they spoke with power and surety, never needing to think about their next sentence or even word. The purpose of these speeches was not to convince anyone, but to cast about the crowd for like-minded people. This was how Thomas Sanders became the third of their group. He had heard them talk about the importance of Toronto's Blue Jays and wanted to respond. He liked to think he knew those birds better than any other amateur. Despite their interest, neither Thomas nor Frank nor Jack would ever sign a petition to protect the birds. Why waste time? Thomas went bird-watching whenever his obligations and other interests didn't crowd it out of his schedule. If the birds were gone one day, he would be sad, but he didn't feel there was anything he could do to save them. Both bird-watching and their meetings had Thomas lying in wait. In one case, it was not to disturb the birds. In the other, it was not to disturb his friends, who were usually deep in thought, unless he could make up for, for distracting them with a good idea. Trees shaded the spot they spoke from. Whatever the sky threw down, rain or sun or snow, they were there every Sunday that they felt like it, talking down to the crowd from atop the wooden boxes that Frank had found. Their noses might be red from the cold, but they were dry, as was the rest of them. When the wind shook the trees, whatever they held fell on those below. Frank and his friends wrapped themselves up so well for their speaking engagements that they noticed only the weight of the weather be that raindrops or clumps of snow. Afterwards, they went to Jack's house, which was the house closest to the park, to recover. Their skin changed back to pink. They didn't complain, whatever color it was. Jack said smoking kept him warm. He would smoke on the way over, because he didn't want to do it while they were talking in front of an audience. They met every Saturday. If someone was sick, as Thomas had been last week with fever, or was inconvenienced, or had a pressing obligation. The others filled them in on what had happened. For Frank and Jack, what kept them was correcting term papers, 
a process that, because it had to be done alongside their other work of teaching and preparing lessons, sometimes stretched out for months. Frank taught English, Jack taught French at the same college. Sometimes there was a scare of abuse, of communism, of whatever else bored parents heard they should fear or invented themselves. Most were unwarranted, and because none of their circles said much about their private lives, which wouldn't have aroused suspicion in an honest person anyway, they withstood these panics. Besides, they had tenure. There are forces that can overcome that, such as the hysterias listed above, but they knew how to avoid drawing attention to themselves except in favorable ways. Being punctual, coming to class generally in a good mood, and capable of keeping calm when not, and above all, teaching with pleasure and skill. Thomas was an insurance salesman. He told Frank and Jack what he did long after they had led him into their circle. The house they were in at the time had one sofa that Thomas, the first to reach it, and Jack, to whom it belonged, shared. Jack joked that one of his type had already gotten to him. Thomas got up, gestured to his seat, and said, Please, then sat back down, before Tom Jack could make good on the offer. Frank nodded and gave a little smile to show he appreciated the joke. Thomas explained what he did in more detail, and then, drawing a clear distinction between the two, gave his own thoughts on the industry. Had Frank known enough to disagree, he would still have accepted what Thomas said. He welcomed every opinion, whether he was talking to his friends or to his students. It was his nature to be curious and to see the other side, something Jack made fun of him for, but only to the point where Frank could still see the humor in it, never past that. For all his openness, he did have opinions of his own, the right to which he gave himself, as others did to theirs. Frank, only now realizing he didn't know, asked Thomas what province he was from. He was born in Toronto, grew up there too. What gave him away? Nothing, that was just it. Jack was from Quebec, though you could hardly hear it in his voice. You couldn't always tell. Thomas said that wasn't true. Thomas said that was true. Frank told him how he grew up in Toronto and about Jack in Quebec. Thomas heard of Frank's childhood money problems. He asked if there was anything he could do to help. Frank put a hand to on Thomas's knee. No need. I've worked my way up to a nice middle-class life, he said. Still, the past wasn't so easily forgotten. What did Thomas think of that? Thomas kept his eyes on the floor until he, he was ready to answer. Then he looked up at Frank, who was sitting in a chair opposite him. I think you're more right than wrong, though it's not your whole life. I can't say what being in Toronto has done for me that Ontario couldn't. I saw Blue Jays as a boy, but that's not why I like them. I can't tell you why, but I know that's not it. He paused, keeping his eyes where they were, then resumed speaking as if nothing had happened. His appreciation for birds came in his later years, when he was forced to slow down by his aging body. Thomas found it funny that Frank could explain away so much of himself with the books his father read to him as a boy. But you know best, he said, in case Frank might take offense. Frank nodded slowly in agreement. He got up at the same speed, but as he took a random book from Jack's shelves and flipped it open for a quote, he returned to normal. The book was Dickens, 
than Oliver Twist, a biography. Frank, wanting to keep the th keep to the theme he had established, talked about what Dickens' early poverty had done to him in his work. Jack and Thomas listened quietly. After Frank had read up until Dickens published his second book, they went through all the Dickens they remembered and noted the connections they saw. The living room settled into a silence that lasted until Frank began music again. They all, he said, believed they could explain the world. Well, not they specifically, but they plural. They, members of the human race, and all those therein contained. This gave new meaning to their speeches in the park. They were doing more than looking for others to join their group. The better they tried to define what made their speeches important, the vaguer they became, until Thomas called them a great project. If anyone there had asked him what he meant by that, he couldn't have answered without embarrassing himself. Books, then, were supposed to map the heart and mind, a fancy phrase Frank congratulated Jack on coining as he interrupted his cigarette puffing to blow smoke first out of the window and then up his friend's. Jack tried to remember that for later, intending to use that for his book, intending to use it for his book. <clears throat> he kept it by him until he was back home and had written half of the introduction, but he still had very little to introduce. One day, while correcting papers, Frank remembered that meeting and his father's portraits. Rather than reminisce, he tried to find them. Five minutes of attic searching was all it took. Neither the paper nor the plastic had aged, although the binder was dusty. He showed them to his friends the next time they met at his house, reminding them of his father's readings. None of his friends had had this sort of early education. The three of them guessed at who the characters were. Some, like Fagin, were archetypes given a name. He could be known by his nose alone. Others were striking in their character, but not in their appearance. Whatever depths, depths existed in them were buried, buried within. Even Frank couldn't recall everything his father had drawn. He knew some of the books they had read, and could guess the rest by what his father would have thought appropriate for his age. Frank had reread most of them as an adult. When possible, he explained what this character and that passage meant to him as a boy, and contrasted this with what he got from them now. If he couldn't remember, he speculated. For a time, he'd seen himself in nearly every boy he read about, even the minor characters, although they didn't have much of a personality to project onto. Frank couldn't bear hardship as well as Oliver Twist, nor was he ever as honest about his good or his bad qualities. However, this didn't stop him from seeing similarities. To work hard like Oliver is to be consistent in what others do occasionally. To look for fights like Noah Claypool is to do about the same thing, only with a different goal in mind. Sometimes Frank was like one person, and sometimes he was like another, a bit of childish wisdom he remembered from back then. Poe's stories fed his imagination in a more obvious sense, with fantastical concepts and settings, although to a young Frank Holmes, Dickens' England was just as strange and brutal. Jack and Thomas watched Frank pull his personality from his younger self yet again, a magic trick that n never failed. They enjoyed the portraits as much as he had, though they imagined what he had seen in them then, something he knew more about and tried to explain, but didn't totally understand himself.
He talked anyway, as he loved to do. The others listened, and then they had had their turn, and Frank had another. This went on until they'd said all they could. Jack took out a cigarette and reached to open the closest window. Thomas watched him intently. Both leaned back in their chairs. Frank stayed on his feet, but rested on his heels, waiting for an idea to come. Apropos of nothing but this silence, Jack invited them both to Quebec for Christmas. If you can make it, he added, giving them an out they knew they had before he said it. The invitation was months in advance, but they accepted it nonetheless, rightly assuming nothing would come up that might complicate their plans. The day came, and the three of them crowded into a train compartment. They had to get up very early for such a long trip. It would have been two hours and also too expensive to go by plane. Jack took up the compartment's little table, intending to start an essay on their trip, which he planned to finish when they went back. Frank and Thomas made do with the windows. Sometimes they could see the lakes which the train passed. They arrived a little later than intended. None of the guests seemed to mind or even to notice. Frank and Thomas, unable to find a foothold in any of the five or so conversations that went on around them as they took their seats, focused on the novelty of what they ate. Without the pork pie in front of him, or the French that came from all sides, Frank wouldn't have known he was in Quebec. The people here looked like people from Toronto, something Frank should have expected. Somebody had his aunt's eyes, another her nose, and yet another reminded him of a stranger he had seen once and remembered to this day. He told himself jokingly that they might as well have stayed put. The neighborhood looked about the same too, though the street signs and billboards he'd seen as they had approached the Davis house talked to him in a language he didn't know about places and products that meant nothing to him. The three of them sat close by to ensure they'd stay together. After dinner, the party lost all sense of structure. Frank soon stepped out into the backyard to smoke. He saw Frank and Thomas, who needed air, and nodded at them. It was so cold that they could have seen their breath, had it not also been dark. Jack's cigarette glowed but its light showed itself and no more than that. Frank and Thomas nodded back and did so again when they went back inside. People went from room to room, drinking and talking, and when they had drunk and talked themselves out, they stayed where they were. The only uncomfortable moment in the whole celebration was when someone asked Jack when, if his new girlfriend was coming later. He said that... For, this first in French and then in broken English, those being all the languages he knew. And so, of all the people who heard, Jack understood him last. The man probably didn't know the man, the man probably didn't know about Jack's book, or else that would have been part of his ribbing too. Frank didn't know who he was. He figured him for an uncle, or at least a close relative. Who else would dare dare to say something like that? Who else would dare say something like that? Well, Jack wouldn't want to tell him. If, the ma if that man had been Jack's friend, their friendship would have been over, but he seemed to be family, a tie that binds, but not so closely that it can't be ignored, just as Jack ignored that, the remark. 
Most of the others there didn't even hear it. There were too many people saying too many things that overhearing a jab like that was near impossible. Frank and Thomas escaped notice for the same reason, although Jack introduced them to his parents. When they had had enough, they searched up Jack's parents again to say goodbye. It wouldn't be right to leave unannounced, and who else could they thank for their splendid evening? Once they'd taken care of that, they headed for their hotel. You didn't want to stay in your old room? Frank asked, turning to Jack after he had finished speaking. Jack shook his head, too tired to consider that he might not be serious. Normally, Frank and Thomas had a hard time getting to sleep, but they drank so much that they were barely in bed before they were out. As they went back to Toronto, Jack read the account of the trip that he had put together. It was exactly that, an account, nothing more. Frank gave his opinion. Jack thanked him for his kind words, promising to keep at it. Their next meeting was devoted to Jack's book. Fittingly, they met at his house. They sat close together, though in separate chairs. The more Jack talked, the more passionate he became, until he seemingly felt that sitting wasn't doing his words justice. He paced his living room, explaining how he had made progress like never before, puffing on his cigarette between sentences. Frank held up a hand to draw himself to Frank held up a hand to draw attention to himself and gave Jack an ashtray with the other. Jack carried it alongside his cigarette, which he tapped over the tray as methodically as he would if his smoking were endangering someone else's carpet. With a passion that surprised his friends, Jack explained what he had learned. His mistake was trying to see differences where they didn't exist, trying to uncover something within himself that wasn't there. That was dishonest and wasn't helpful besides. His friends had never heard him talk this much about his book before, so they accepted what he said without question. He would write about his life from the beginning. That's how he'd see things more clearly. Jack said this out loud, but as if nobody else were there. Anticipating his request, Frank handed him a piece of printer paper and a pen, then looked for more. Jack wrote out, out a plan for each chapter and read out and read little snatches of what he had of what he drafted to the delight of his whole audience when this flash of inspiration was gone jack looked up from his notebook at thomas and what do you need help with jack asked nothing nothing at all thomas said he had no such ambitions thomas looked at them then at the floor then back to them a little embarrassed that they didn't or couldn't believe him. That was a study written and read by Philip Alisha. As always, remember to like, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to subscribe uh, to the blog where I read these stories from, then you can find a link to that in the description. Thanks, and until next time.